Welcome to the Dope CFO Podcast, where you can find the best information for accountants and bookkeepers that want to start and grow a highly profitable and flexible remote cannabis accounting firm. With your hosts, Naomi Granger and Andrew Hunziker. Now that's dope. This is the Small Accounting Firm Guide to Cannabis Bookkeeping. You should see a Q&A box as well as a chat box. So if you have specific questions about our presentation or anything about cannabis accounting, please drop that into the Q&A box so that we can keep track and get your questions answered. And if you just have a comment or want to make a, a, a comment, you can drop that in the chat box. All right. Well, look at the state of cannabis today. It is changing incredibly rapidly legal in 33 states medical seven recreational every time i look at these 20 billion 70 billion they keep getting bigger no one knows exactly how big the black market is it's going to be getting much much bigger um we're seeing just on the state side i think we have six more states going cannabis legal and have things up for vote right now including i think kentucky is voting right this second on cannabis as well and so this is really sweeping the nation quickly. We had, when I started just four or five years ago, it was just Colorado, Oregon, Washington. Now we're almost everywhere. By the end of these elections, when we go out just seven, eight months to November, December, we're likely going to have 40 plus states legal. And um, then the question is, is the, the federal government just going to take cannabis off schedule one? Or are they going to wait for all 50 states to do it first? Um, we're going to get to that point where it's going to make more sense for them to just move that off. The counting will be complex no matter what. So this isn't a deal where you just need to be bookkeeping until it becomes legal and it's not going to be a great niche. It will be a huge complex niche even after it goes legal. We can witness that with CBD and hemp right now. It's um, every bit as complicated as cannabis, if not more so, because there's more tax codes open to them. There's major issues in this whole, both these industries around taxes, software, banking, cash, and month-end reporting, cost accounting, very complicated. Um, most are doing this wrong because it's a very, very underserved niche by accounting. Most niches start from the top down with big four industry guides, gap guidance. They train staff. They go to work at companies. That didn't happen in cannabis. And it hasn't happened. And we're a long way away from that. And so this is being built from the ground up. On top of that, we've got completely unrelated verticals in this niche. We've got farming. We have retail. We have manufacturing of products. We also have processing chemical manufacturing of oil. And then we have labs. So very complex. And now we just want to um, introduce ourselves so that you can know, you know, why you should listen to us and why we are qualified to give you this information. Um, so my name is Naomi Granger and Andrew Hunzinger was the gentleman that was just speaking. And we are co-founders of the nationally recognized cannabis accounting training program, um, CBD CFO. We have been featured in Forbes, the Wall Street Journal, Green Entrepreneur, Accounting Today, Bloomberg, and various other publications. And we have been teaching about cannabis accounting for over two years now, um, as well as um, Andrew has been in this industry for about four or five years now. So we've got a ton of experience here and then we're just bringing it out to everybody else so that you guys can also service this industry. Here's a little bit about the challenges that we're seeing for bookkeepers and cannabis. And so the number one challenge, there are many vendors that
that will not service the cannabis industry. So as a bookkeeper, a lot of times you think that you can just go get one of these clients and you can just use your QuickBooks and your PayPal and your Stripe and all the normal POS systems, merchant services, payroll processors that you're currently using with your non-cannabis companies. In cannabis, a lot of these companies will not service them because of risk with banking and money laundering and things. But what we're finding is there are a lot of new vendors that are on the market that are servicing these clients. However, these new vendors are new. They have bugs and kinks in their systems. Their reports don't reconcile. Their reports don't talk to each other and they don't talk to others. So your POS system is not talking to your accounting software and your banking solution is not talking to your inventory software. And it's it's a reconciliation nightmare. So you have to understand which vendors work with these companies and how to reconcile the reports and make sure that you have accurate books and records across all vendors. There's lack of accounting tools, work papers, industry guides. This is a brand new industry. It's still federally illegal. And so you don't have the big four in this industry and other accountants that are out there writing white papers and writing the rule books where you can just have a reference guide to go to and figure this out. A lot of that stuff is not out there yet. And as I mentioned, there's new software on the market. They have significant downtime. A lot of their features don't work and they have very poor customer service. There's also a state mandated seed to sale tracking software, which is the only industry in the country that requires that you use the state seed to sale tracking software, which does not integrate with cannabis or other accounting software. And not only does it not integrate, it doesn't even really track sales price and cost. It just tracks volume and quantities. And it doesn't have any checks and balances to it. So you can record something incorrectly and there's no system in place to flag and say, hey, you recorded grams over here and pounds over here. And then the software doesn't integrate. There's monthly, quarterly, and yearly reporting requirements. So a lot of your bookkeeping clients may not require monthly or quarterly reporting. You may just can do it at the end of the year and then file their tax return. But with cannabis, they will miss out on a lot of deductions if you're not doing regular monthly and quarterly reporting, as well as they have some issues with getting banking if you don't have monthly reports. And then they have very complex consolidations, many verticals, and a lot of just workarounds are required in this industry. All right, we're going to look at the key tax code for cannabis companies. As a bookkeeper, you need to know about Section 471. So in our program, we teach as close to gap accounting as we can get for the basic day-to-day books. And there's a lot of value in doing that because for one, having gap basis books, it's first of all, better and easier to manage your business. Secondly, you have easier access to capital. You're better set up for an audit if and when you want to do an exit or any anything like that or go public, any of those types of things, which many cannabis companies do. Luckily, the cost accounting we teach in the gap side is also perfectly set up for section 471 for the tax return. This is very, very important. So traditionally, when we think about bookkeepers, your company, you basically just, as as something is paid in cash, you pay an invoice, you record it in the books. You pay the rent, you record it in the books. You're not doing cost accounting, which is where you come back at month end and you say, okay, I've got to do a second set of accounting, which is fairly complicated, where I'm going to start moving things 
things around. You're going to take a piece of rent, a piece of the electric bill, a piece of insurance, a piece of many other costs, and you're going to move that around to categories of inventory, raw materials, whip, finished goods, and then also cost of goods sold. So if you don't have a system or process in place for that, and of the 50,000 cannabis and CBD hemp companies out there, I would say less than a thousand are doing this at all. They're not doing accounting right. And so first and foremost, if you don't do cost accounting, how do you run your business? If you don't know what it costs you to grow a pound of weed or what it costs you to produce a kilogram of oil, how on earth can you run your business? Um, so that's why I say right here, cost accounting is a must. Secondly, under 470.11, let's just start at the bottom of the screen. If you are a cultivator, processor, or manufacturer of edibles or other products, you're missing some deductions if you're not doing cost accounting in accordance with GAAP in your financials, because there's three categories of costs that you can move around as you do this. And so the first category, first of all, all direct costs, which includes direct materials and labor, those costs must be moved into inventory and cost of goods sold. Secondly, indirect costs, we have costs which must be included, um, things like rent, um, electricity, utilities, that kind of thing, costs that can never be included, like advertising. But thirdly, costs which can be included if they're consistent with taxpayer recurring financials in, in accordance with GAAP. The reason that's important is because if you're not doing this correctly, your CEO is either missing a tax deduction or they're doing their tax deductions wrong. Both of those are bad answers for the CEO. They only get one deduction under 280E and 471. Um, basically, 280E says you cannot deduct anything on your tax return. And luckily, cost of goods sold is not a deduction. It's not a credit. It's a return of capital. So we want to do cost accounting right. We want to maximize our cost of goods sold. That will result in lower tax penalty to the CEO. So that's very important for those reasons. Um, 471-2 is how you value your inventory. It's usually lower of cost at market or cost. Um, with commodity pricing in oil and flour, you will sometimes have market prices lower than cost. That's very rare in most of the world but or other industries, but it is can be common here, meaning you might have a write down to do. Um, retailers and dispensaries, their inventory price is basically the invoice price plus some transportation and other necessary costs. If you do some production to the product as a retailer, like you take flour and you turn it into pre-rolls and you maybe add some other ingredients or whatever, you can possibly allocate more cost into that product and again, get a higher tax deductions. Um, the IRS is very wary of non-cannabis divisions um, in retailers where some of these retailers might say set up a t-shirt and hat division and try to take some tax deductions that they're otherwise not allowed and be very, very careful around that. We'll talk about um, some court cases um, later on. Now on the entity issues, we are accountants and bookkeepers, and so we don't normally give our CEOs guidance on what type of entity to set up. We let we want to make sure an attorney has the final sign-off because we are not attorneys. We want to make sure we're not giving legal advice. That said, we can give them guidance and input on our thoughts on C Corp sources flow through and the tax implications, and then let them finalize that with their attorneys. In the old world, almost everyone was always setting up flow-throughs for all kinds of different companies. There's a single tax. Um, we now have Section 199A considerations and benefits. Those are in the new laws around 2017. There can be some good uh, benefits on that. However, it's unlikely, and, and these have not been tested in the court yet, about how does that affect a cannabis owner. Um, with a flow-through entity, you have much higher audit risk and investor risk. So if, say, you're an investor and you invest 20% of your dollars in a cannabis entity and it's an LLC, well, you're a minority owner. So 
So that means you have absolutely no control of anything they do in there, or if they'll even pay you out a distribution every quarter for tax payments. And so one risk you have right there is that you will get a K-1 with taxable income on it. So you own 20% of the company and you get a K-1 that says, dear investor, um, you've got 50,000 of taxable income, go ahead and pay the government tax. And you're going to be like, well, great, give me a distribution. Many cannabis companies are saying, oh, we have no money to give a distribution. It's all gone. So here you got to owe tax, but you don't have any money to pay the tax. Secondly, we've seen high dollar um, investors in a company that have higher audit risk. So the IRS shows up to audit the tax, the cannabis company, the grow, and they say, oh, look at this really wealthy investor. I think we're going to come down and audit you as well since you invested in this company. We have seen that um, get some very unhappy results with some investors that didn't realize this um, because oftentimes they are where all the money is and the IRS is loving to get, get into their personal books and records. So we find C-Corp has a lot of benefits. If there is double taxation, although the tax rate is much lower now, it's 21% versus 35, and there's less audit risk for the investor. Also, the company pays the tax, so the investor never has to worry about getting hit with a tax bill, and the company itself will be paying the tax. And there's also asset and bankruptcy protection. Investors are safe. You can also avoid the double taxation oftentimes with 1202 capital gain considerations. Since these C-Corps and cannabis are not paying out much in dividends. And of course, you have to pay out a dividend to get hit with double tax, but they often don't have the money because these companies are very capital intensive. They're trying to build their brand, their product. There is usually no money in years one to five for dividends. So that means you're not paying that double tax. And then if the company is sold four years from now when 280E is gone, there's going to be a capital gain, but you can possibly avoid all the capital gain under section 1202. So there's a lot to um, consider. Um, someone's asking in the chat about 199A. Those still have not been tested um, in the courts. Right now, there are a lot of, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a while, a lot of um, issues around that. And it, it remains to be seen. It will play out in the courts. Again, we advise our clients to be as conservative as possible because even if you're right and even if you win, if you take an aggressive tax position and you end up in court for four years and you win and you save, I don't know, 50 grand, but you spent 300 grand on attorneys and lawsuits, you're still a loser. So we think the smart play is to be conservative and try to build your company. Okay, so now we're going to get into how do you clean up these cannabis clients? So the, basically on the cleanup side, on our process and um, things to remember, accounting always follows legal documents. And so I've seen so many messy legal documents in cannabis companies. They've got LLC documents or note agreements or agreements among parties and they're not signed. They're in draft mode there. They can't find them. So we always start out getting our PBCs, which means prepared by client, which is a long list of documents, such as corporate documents, stock option plans, leases, notes payables, other contracts, um, that's step one. You can't do cleanup if you don't have the supporting documentation. If cleanup starts at the inception of the company, if you go back five years or whatever, you're going to need all the prior year's tax returns. Um, you're always going to start off with the very first entry that's going to tie to their original corporate document, which is usually some kind of capital contribution. It may just be $100, but it'll usually be in the legal documents and something like this, debit cash, credit, common stock. If the books are a mess, we'll download the transactions 
instructions from start to finish into Excel and kind of scrap the old QuickBooks file or whatever it is. We start with our own chart of accounts and then we'll journal in the income and expenses by year once we tie them out in Excel. Okay, so here's an example of how we collect the transaction level support. And so what you'll find is a lot of these companies, because of the banking issues and things, they will have transactions that they've run through their own personal checking and savings accounts and their own personal credit cards. And what they'll do is they will give you just an Excel document with all of the different transactions, the amounts, a description of what they spent, the expense type, and then you develop a threshold. So you might not get every $30 receipt, but if your threshold is $500, $1,000, $5,000, just to give you a good coverage over the amount of money that was spent, you would collect every receipt above that threshold. And then you would have to put it in your perpetual data room, which is our file management system, that receipt and label it something. So I would also add the year. So if you're doing cleanup for multiple years, if you're doing 2018 and 2019, you'd want to have 2018 folder A-1. Um, this is the receipt for Office Max. And so you'll see in column E is where we're kind of keeping track of where you can find that support so that we can see like in total, this document should agree to the opening balance balance for the financials. If this is cleanup, um, it should agree to your opening balance. And then every single number, you should be able to see support for every single number above your threshold. Now, one other thing on that, the, we do look at materiality. If they're missing a bunch of documents, we can usually do a sort and make sure we get, you know, 95% support. You can, maybe the bottom 5% is a whole bunch of teeny transactions like that $34 one. So it's one way to get a little bit around it. But once we build this file and attachments for the significant cost support, those, um, that audit trail is there forever. So that's great um, as well. And then we'll, we'll have that in place in case they're audited three years from now. So again, this is kind of of the short version of cleanup. We have this in our program, but first we always get the engagement letter signed and retainer collected. Make sure you're not starting to do work before you get some money. I'm on the cleanup side. So the way we bill, if I get a client today and we're going to start March 1st, which is in a couple of days, and I'm going to say, okay, we're going to do your bookkeeping and accounting for four grand a month or six grand or whatever it's going to be. We're going to start building that March 1 for March and April, even if we're not working on March or April until we get done with cleanup. 40 days from now, we're still going to bill them for it because eventually we're going to have to do March accounting. We're going to have to do April. But on top of that, we're going to bill them a hundred bucks an hour or more from the backwards cleanup. And we let the CEO know it's in their incentive to be helpful, get us the documents we need, or they're going to be paying a lot of money for that backwards cleanup because it's going to be a whole bunch of just ticking and tying out and collecting documents. And so we make sure we get paid a very high hourly rate for that. We get an action plan with the client. Again, when we present to clients, we show them we're doing world-class client service and bookkeeping and accounting. And because of that, we're going to get paid high rates. We show them why it's so important to them. We show them the court cases. And so the client and the CEO buy in on that. Usually we have much better compliance with cleanup. So if you look at the bottom of this, it says the number one issue bookkeepers have is not getting access to delivery of client supporting documents. The way we present our offer and our high fee to the CEO, that actually helps us. The more money they pay you, the more likely they're going to comply with you. So think about that. They're paying you more money and your job's easier. Wow, that's a great concept. The other way is, the way many people do it is, you charge low rates for it, they don't comply with you, you pull your hair out, it goes on forever, and you're both miserable. So um, charge a lot of money for this. We get them this PBC list, including due dates for each item, and we let them know up front, you know, it's in their incentive to get this stuff to us so we can um, do, do a good job for them. 
Okay, so now here's an example of a PBC. I'm not really sure if PBC is a common acronym. We use that in public accounting. It stands for provided by clients. So these are all the documents. And this is just a snippet of some of the documents that we are requesting from client. But there's for every single balance sheet account, there are a list of documents that should be required. So just to, for an example, we have inventory on here. You need to have a physical inventory account because you can't just look at the books and records or whatever they've maintained in the past, especially if you're doing cleanup work, an actual physical account will tell you the true story of what they have in inventory. So you need an account that's signed off by two different people. You need to know their inventory policies, procedures, and controls to make sure that they have controls in place for shrinkage and spoilage and things like that. With these cultivators, they are doing million dollar build out. So you're going to want to have a fixed asset listing. They're going to have these really expensive lights and trays and different things that are in place in order to build those out. And you're going to have to understand their fixed asset policy. And if they don't have one, help them develop one. Intercompany is a big thing. You'll have intercompany transactions, as I mentioned earlier about the owners needing to finance different things because they're still trying to get their banking in order as well as them having different legal entities. You want to understand all of the related, related parties and the subsidiaries, leases, any debt. You will need to have signed confirmation of all outstanding debt and any debt to owners or, um, or investors and things like that. And you also need an equity roll forward and in, in taxes, um, payroll. If they haven't done taxes, then of course you'll need to prepare these taxes and then make sure that all of their payroll things are up to date. You don't want to get started with work until you have most of this stuff because it's going to waste your time because if you're trying to, you know, you're doing all this stuff and all you have is bank statements, but no inventory counts, you can't really move forward because you don't have a complete picture of what's going on with their books. And then here, um, additional steps when you're tying out. The last slide was collecting all your PBCs. You want to have all the PBCs. You want to have access to their accounting files, no matter where they're hosted, but ensure that the client owns the accounting software. You just have access to it so that if anything happens, if they have an investor that wants access to it, if the banking wants access to it, if they're audited, they own this accounting software and they should be able to get the information to whoever needs it. You also want to make sure that you've tied out all of the prior year numbers. If they have tax returns, the tax return should tie out to the Schedule L. If it doesn't tie out to the Schedule L, if there's a significant discrepancy and the tax return needs to be amended, you need to make sure all this stuff is done. Make sure that their bank accounts are reconciled. If they don't have bank accounts, you need to make sure the document that we showed in the prior slide where you have all of their transactions on Excel documents with all of the support, that needs to tie out to what you're putting in for cash and banking in their books. Make sure that their inventory is counted and it ties out to the inventory counts. And you also want to make sure that all of the sizable balance sheet accounts as of the first, so if it's January 1st or whatever day that you're starting um, working on their books, make sure that the balance sheet ties out to that and you have supporting documents for all the, all the significant transactions. Finally, like Naomi was just saying, the big goal, we just want to make sure we have the balance sheet nailed down. So in this example, January January 1 of 19 or say it was now we're now in 2020 and say we're starting this year we want to make sure that our January 1 2020 balance sheet is really well supported so if they're an oil processor and they've got half a million dollars of equipment we want to make sure we've got support for that half a million dollar equipment same if they're a cultivator and they've got a ton of inventory we want to make sure that they've got counts of that inventory at 1231 2019 of all the plants weights of the flower so we can feel confident in those numbers so as we clean up the 
current year, we're like, we know we have a good starting point. And so once we get started, we will do a big AJE into our cleaned up trial balance in our new chart of accounts that is tailored for cannabis and is set up to do correct cost accounting. So again, if you your chart of accounts isn't set up right, you're going to have difficulty even getting the opening journal entry. So basically under this scenario, you'd have 90 days to do a cleanup to get to September 30th, and then you do the AJE at 930. So the AJE for the cleanup date is usually in the future of the engagement date. So if, again, if we're starting today on March 1, and the year we're going to clean up all the way through the backward year to March 1, but our actually go live date may be May 1, depending on how long it takes them to get the solid documents, that'd be the cleanup date. And then from that point forward, we'll have our new chart of account. Okay, so now we're going to get a little bit into the month-end process. So we're going to talk about the different tie-outs, what you need to do for cost accounting, accruals, and reconciliations. So here are the steps with the month-end process. So you have your cash, your inventory counts on the last day of the month. So this these must be counted. You also have your state seed to sell and POS system reports. So it's important that you know which day of the month to pull these because sometimes the state seed to sell systems you may put a date, if it's like the fifth of the month and you say this is as of the first of the month, it will say it's as of the first of the month on report, but the data is actually the information from the fifth of the month. So it's important that you have a process in place and that you're pulling these things on the right date. You need to also have the client operations data. So there's things like the flower calendar, which tells you the yields by strand, the percent completion, and you will need all of this information in order to figure out your inventory level so that you can make your inventory journal entry very important in order to do proper cost accounting for these companies. You'll want to build your month in tie out file. You'll want to reconcile everything. You want to reconcile your cash, your AR, your inventory, every single balance sheet, significant balance sheet account should be reconciled to the POS system, to the state seat to sell system, as well as the accounting system, and they should all agree. You'll want to build your financial statements as well as your consolidations, your rolling forecast, your KPIs, and your dashboards for your clients. And then you're also going to want to do some tax planning and other value-added services for these clients. And so the, the month-end tie-out system that we teach in our program, again, whether it's cannabis or non-cannabis, I, I would guess 99% of small businesses do not do anything like this. Um, Tracy's asking in Q&A, is cleanup like conducting an audit? And I'll say yes, in a way, both cleanup and our monthly tie-out that we do every single month. It's almost a mini audit and it is our system. If you're the bookkeeper and no one's checking your work and assume the CEO and even if there's a part-time CFO, they're probably not digging in and, and reviewing your entry. So if you code airplane expense to electric bill, probably it's not gonna be caught because QuickBooks will make it look pretty and you can code or zero or wherever you code it to. So there needs to be a system. If you kind of look at the flow of transactions from a transaction happens to a source document, to entering it in the general ledger, to the trial balance, to financial reporting. If you don't have some kind of system that goes in each month and ties things out and tests things, you will have errors in your financials. And that's why I've almost never seen a company in any month not have errors that I, I haven't found. And so this month in tie out, it basically jumps into the middle of the trial balance each month and says, we're going to tie out backwards and forwards, forwards to the financial statements and backwards to the source documents and transactions. And so that is like a mini audit and it's there forever. Once you do this and this, this example of I think it's um, 1231.17. So if you come back six years from now, all this work is done. It's there. If the accountant is long gone, doesn't matter. 
the IRS or whoever's needing to audit this, it's ticked and tied out so that anyone can trace this forward and backwards from the client financials all the way to source document. It has huge value to the CEO. They can use this for loans, investors, exits, just managing the business better and finding and fixing those errors. Also adding accruals in. You know, if you typically say you pay the, you know, the insurance bill shows up for the year in May and you pay $2,000 on the insurance bill and that doesn't all just relate to May, nine times out of 10, you'll have a big fat cost in May for insurance and then a bunch of zeros for insurance expense the rest of the year. That's not correct. So we use this to go in and correct that and make those adjustments. Same in cannabis, we've got cost accounting. You can't just pay the rent bill and be done with it. You have to go back in and have a methodology to figure out how much of that rent should be in inventory, how much of the rent should be in cost of goods sold, how much of that rent should stay in rent. And you also need a good system to present that to client so it makes sense to them. So anyway, this is kind of our way where we'll walk down. We start in this big, massive file. One tab will be the preliminary trial balance. And so the unadjusted trial balance on the left, and then we'll find AJEs and we'll finally come to the final trial balance number. And then each one of these rows will tie out, for example, this is the cash balance on the right. So if the cash number is 15,000 on the trial balance, we're going to dive in deeper into that on the cash tab. And we're going to go in first with the bank reconciliation, which ties to the bank statement. A1, you can see, then we'll have outstanding checks, deposits and transits, other things. And each one of those numbers are ticked and tied out. And so that's your audit trail that will, will live on forever. And if there's a mistake and error, that's where you'll fix it. Yeah. And I'm seeing that Tracy has a follow-up question about, do I need to be a CPA or have a CPA on staff to do this work. And I'm, I'm assuming, Tracy, you're asking that because you, you're, you're seeing that the cleanup kind of looks like a mini audit. So even though it's kind of like a mini audit, we are not signing an, any type of opinion on this. So it's you don't have to have a CPA in order to do this. This is more of like a check of your work just to ensure that you have everything in place um, and that you have everything supported because these companies are being audited by the IRS and by the banks and by various different governmental agencies. So you want to ensure that you have everything in place. And that's just a huge value add to your client, but you don't have to have a CPA license to do that. And one other thing I'll say about this, when you put this system in and it says someone asked, do you provide these systems? Yes, we teach this in our course. Um, you will find errors every single month and you will fix them and you will add accruals and you will do that cost accounting. You don't have to be a CPA to do this. We've taught many, many bookkeepers how to do these steps in our program. We have the templates and the tools um, to do that. Someone, Courtney says, it seems this is similar to month for a public company. Yes, most public companies have accounting teams that do much more detailed work on their books and records um, each month. But what we're trying to do to give a bookkeeper is some systems and tools and processes to add so much more value to your clients. If you just want to step back and look in the US right now, bookkeepers on average earn 21 bucks an hour. And guess what? Over in Asia, Malaysia, India, you've got high level accountants over there willing to charge five bucks an hour to do basic bookkeeping. So how on earth are you, do you compete? Well, I'll tell you how. You add more value to your CEO. This is a way you can add more value to your CEO. Your competition's not doing this. So if you do this, you can add more value and you can earn higher fees. Yeah. And just to, um, Courtney, off of that, you're at saying that this looks like a month in for a public company. And that's the key to this. A lot of bookkeepers who aren't familiar with cannabis companies jump in and think that their month in is the same as their dentist client or their chiropractor or their restaurant client that they have down mm -hmm. the street. And it is not. You accrue 
full accounting is required in order to maximize their deductions. And since these companies are being audited by the IRS, it is very similar, even though they are private companies. I know there was a question earlier on that does a private cultivator need to maintain books. These companies are, for the most part, they are private because they can't go public in the U.S. They might be public in Canada, but all of them are private, but they're still required to have this level of detail because the government is still trying to get comfortable that all the information is being reported properly for these companies. And I just wanted for George, you're asking, do the do we provide these systems? I just wanted to go back to this slide. And so we mentioned that you need to be able to client operations data, the flower calendar. We provide that. Build your own month-end tie-out file. We provide that. Reconcile and doing your counts. Building financials and consolidations. We provide the financials, the consolidations, the rolling cash forecast, the KPIs, the dashboards, tax planning, all these value-added documents are provided. Let's go to the next slide that I'll show the retail slide because um, Hannah's asking about retail cost accounting for dispensaries. So I'm going to answer that one live. And again, yes, there's over 100 work papers and tools in the program that you can use immediately if you join. But again, cost accounting, like Naomi said, it's it's valuable for audits or access to capital or whatever. But also remember, these systems make it better for the CEO and management to run their business. If they don't have good data in and they don't do cost accounting in cannabis, how do they, on earth, do they manage their business and compete with others? So what we need to do is make sure, first of all, the accounting is done right. And so this big messy slide shows doing accounting right in a retail operation, a dispensary is very, very messy. So up in the far left, you're seeing, okay, someone buys 10 pounds of a pot out of the dispensary, probably for cash. And so first of all, we got a cash issue. Is that number documented, supported in writing with a double count? Does two people see $10,000 going out the door? Then we have possibly three different pieces of manual entry. So it's three places we can get data entry off right off the bat. One's in their POS system, probably something like Greenbits, Flowhub, Blaze, Tree, one of those systems. Secondly, into their seed to sale system on the right, it may or may not sync. So you may have to enter it again to say, for example, metric. The third place is you got to enter that $10,000 into your accounting system. Again, be very wary of these systems syncing together. Some of them do now. We actually prefer them not to sync because we found even more headaches at monthly reconciliation when they do sync. These software systems are all new. They're all buggy and they're bad in, on their own. So for example, GreenBits is bad on its own. Metric is bad on its own. And if you sync them together, they're even compounded worse synced together. So be super careful. We don't like to have anything synced into our books because that's a way to just have the books be out of whack. So we have to use a lot of Excel files and templates to do these reconciliations. In the middle of this messy file, you see the counts. So at the at month end, that's what I call the truth, the blue. And it's, you know, you may say your POS system green, but says you've got eight packages of cherry gummy bears. And then you go to your seed sale and it says, no, you got 10 packs of those gummy bears. And then you look in your accounting system and it's got another number. But then when you go to count them, you find there's only three packs of gummy bears on the shelf. Well, that's the answer. At month end, you got three packs. I don't care what the other systems say. And part of your system will be to true those back up to the correct amounts. And so it's a lot of work. That's why we charge a lot of high fees for these services. Yeah. Okay. So awesome. So this is also, you will need a specialized chart of accounts. So if you open a QuickBooks file, you're not going to see cannabis company in there and it's not going to spit out a chart of accounts for you. This is something that Andrew spent years developing 
developing, working at the farms, working with the attorneys and figuring out how to properly do a chart of accounts for this. So this is just a snippet, but it kind of is broken out by the cost, direct cost that you can directly allocate 100% to cost of goods sold and inventory. And then you have your indirect costs. And so some of these costs can be allocated based on labor hours, the percentage of labor hours that is dedicated to working with and growing the plant. Other of these indirect costs can be allocated based on the square footage. So the part of the building that's used to grow the plant, um, as opposed to the offices, the administrative offices. And then other costs cannot be allocated no matter what. And then there's other costs that can only be allocated based if you are doing doing your books in accordance with GAP. And it specifically says it in the tax guidance that it has to be done in accordance with GAP. And so we've broken down the chart of accounts so that this can be done properly and that you can get the cost accounting done properly for these clients. Okay, and then this is our flower calendar file. Again, this file is very useful for um, CEOs actually love this file on its own. We have to have this for our cost accounting, but this is basically a very big massive spreadsheet that will show every single room. So like for this client, they may have 25 rooms and we're just showing the first three with different strains, different plant dates and different stages of completion. So we have to be able to estimate the percent complete. We need to know the estimated yield for every single strain. They're all going to be different. And we need to know what point in the process they are so that we can come up with an estimated quantity for every single row at the reporting date. That will be their work, work, in, work in process quantity. And then we'll use that for our cost accounting. And then this is our perpetual data room. I saw a question earlier from Anthony about how do we keep things organized. So this is just kind of a snippet where we have the data room. This is owned by the client. You can use any type of uh, software you would like. This is a Dropbox file, but you can use box.com. Um, you can use whatever you're comfortable with. But then we have it broken down by, by type, if it's debt instrument, if it's intercompany, if it's human resources, accounting records, and then each one, like so the accounting files is broken down by banking, payroll, tax, as well as your month-in files. And then when you get into each month-in accounting file, you'll have it broken out by year and then by month. And so if you're being audited, like say the banks come and they audit these companies quarterly to make sure that they're doing things right in order to keep their bank account open, you can give them January, February, and March for that quarter so that they can do what they need to do with their audit and you have everything organized. Or if an investor comes and they want to understand what other type of debt instruments you have out there or how does your operations look, you have everything organized in all these folders. The IRS is very aware of the games being played since the Champ case was won early on um, around a dispensary being able to allocate some cost um, to a non-cannabis division. Champs had a very substantial non-cannabis division. In fact, they were a non-cannabis company that added in cannabis sales. Um, all the courts have basically won every single case since then. There's more um, ongoing cases. There's even a dissenting opinion from one of the judges about whether or not this is constitutional or not and whether 280E is excessive. But these court cases are going to play out very slowly over the next several years. And so you may have a client, they're only in this for three or four years. They don't want to worry about going to court or being taken to court. They just want to build their value up, do things right, and make money on exit. So again, we tell people to be pretty conservative, not 
not overdo it on the complex entity structure. The courts are going to say, look, we're going to look at the economic organization. So if you have 43 different entities set up and we look at it and see just one company, we're going to call you one company for tax and subject all of it to 280E. So you can actually get into more trouble than it's worth. Um, people are adding too much into cost of goods sold, having small non-cannabis divisions with high allocated losses. And um, again, we tell CEOs, do 280 right with correct cost accounting, build your brand, your market share, have a good location of your dispensary, and grow the company and vertically integrate. The valuations right now, even for private sales and the public companies, are based on that and not net income. So um, you can succeed in cannabis by doing those things and not being so focused on beating 280E. All right, and now we're going to get into how do you find your first cannabis client? Because many of you mentioned that you were not currently working with cannabis clients, and we just want to let you know that they are everywhere. These companies companies, um, these business owners are being featured in magazines, they're being featured in our local newspapers. You can find them um, on LinkedIn, on your state secretary site, because they have to register their business. They're everywhere. And what we will do for everybody on this call is we will email you our cheat sheet with the many ways that you can find cannabis CEOs and clients. And now we're going to get a little bit into why the cannabis niche. We Well, we're biased, but we also agree that this is the best niche out there. Um, and we use the acronym rubber. It's where the rubber meets the road. And so uh, the, the acronym is uh, R. This is a rapidly growing industry. It's the number one growing industry in the world. And now that CBD is also legal nationally, there's so many more clients that you can get. Um, CBD is just as big, if not bigger, than cannabis THC side of this thing. It's also underserved. There's a huge need. So that means that there's less competition. If you were to ask your fellow bookkeepers and accountants, you know, have they considered this industry? You probably hear they might laugh or say, well, no, that's too much risk or it's crazy. A lot of people are just not touching it. But there's over 30,000 licenses that are in this country. So there is a huge need for accountants in this industry. So it's easier to get in here than it is to get, you know, your, your local dentist. Uh, there's a big opportunity. It's a $30 billion industry in the next three to five years. There are bigger revenues. That means that you get to charge bigger fees. So if you think about it, your local dentist may be making 500000 maybe 750000 a year. They can only pay you so much a month to do their bookkeeping. But if you have a small cannabis client, they're, a small cannabis client is making upwards of $5 million a year. And so they have the space and the opportunity to pay, and, and it's a lot more complex. So you're able to charge a lot bigger fees for those clients. They're very easy to find. We're going to send you guys a cheat sheet so you can just see how easy they are to find and how reachable they are. And this is a very, really fun and exciting industry to get into. Okay. And the um, someone had just asked about pricing. And so again, if you're a bookkeeper and you're struggling with pricing and pricing by the hour or whatever, not value pricing, or even struggling to get high fees, this is a great niche. So there's thousands and thousands, I think there's over 50,000 now cannabis or CBD hemp clients in the U.S. It's growing very rapidly um, as well. And even whether it's existing or new, brand new startups, they all need great accounting. We recommend never going below 1500 a month for a one entity startup. That's very rare. Almost every single client we have and have found is anywhere from four to eight or nine entities and several verticals. And so the, the fees just keep going up from, from that point. But if you want to have clients to pay the highest fees, you have to have a great niche, which Naomi just went over. We've seen, I've talked to so many people out of other programs that have been told to pick a niche and they pick a bad niche. And you're just like, it's like beating your head against the wall. Make sure you have a good niche. That's a decision you make one time. So don't make that one incorrectly.
be a VIP, which is an expert, an instructor, and a participant in that niche and provide world-class service once you have the client. And but you have to be focused on a single niche. This is going to allow you, first of all, to build a national practice because you can serve clients everywhere. And we actually tell our students, look everywhere. Don't just focus on your home state. We want you to build a remote practice. So that just expands the prospect pool for you from just your hometown to now you're looking all over the nation. Secondly, if you're an expert in one niche, you're going to add tons more value to your CEO. And so they're going to pay you more for that expertise. Thirdly, it's going to be much easier to serve them because you use the same work papers, tools, and templates every single client. So it's definitely the way to go to be that niche. Also becoming a VIP, that's going to take time unless you have a shortcut into a niche. That's what our program is, um, is basically a huge shortcut. But you can also participate in this niche as well by going to events and helping push the actual movement. It's not just a niche. And then finally, once you have the client, make sure you do the best job for them. Most CEOs are not getting good service. They're not getting good tools. They're not getting good accounting. And that's why they're frustrated. So make sure you're doing that right and you'll be able to earn the highest fees. All right. So right now, Dope CFO is the only place that you can currently get these tools and systems. And we have what we call the dope zone. And so there's three pieces of the puzzle that we feel like you need in order to do this right. You have to know how to find great clients. You also have to be a VIP in this industry. And I'll go over what that means, as well as you have to know how to provide a world-class system. So if you only have two of the three, so say for instance, you know how to find great clients and you're a VIP, which is an expert and instructor or participant in this industry, but you don't know how, you don't have a system in place, then you're in the danger zone. You're able to get all these clients, you know what you're doing, but you don't have a system to onboard them. You don't have a chart of accounts, you don't really know what you're doing. And so you're going to overpromise, but under deliver because you don't have a system to deliver these services to them. If you're able to find great clients and you have a system, but you're not an expert in this industry, now you are in the faking it zone. It's when you, you know, talking to people, but you're not fully confident in the, what you're providing to them because you haven't become an expert in the industry. And so then you feel, you're feeling like a fraud. You're not feeling good about yourself. And then if you are a expert, a VIP in this industry, and you're able, you have the systems and everything in place, the knowledge, however, you're not able to find clients. Now you're in frustration station. This is when you are in this side hustle. You don't have clients, so you're not making the money that you need in order to live. So you have to have a nine to five or some other type of business that's supporting you. And this just becomes a side gig. So you really want to be right there in the middle. And we call that the dope zone. And that's when you're a lifestyle accountant, you're able to get paid what you're worth, work remotely, you have freedom and flexibility in your schedule, and as well as make a difference in your life and your client's life. Okay, and I'm going to jump into this is the goal for all of us. And Naomi pointed out to me that I was answering questions in chat and didn't have the attendees on here. So I've answered some of you that didn't see my answers. Let me just jump. There's just a couple of those. Tracy had asked, do you have to be a CPA? That's a great question. Again, there's 50,000 companies in the U.S. And I would say nine out of 10 are served by a bookkeeper that is not a CPA, not an enrolled agent. And so they're already being served by bookkeepers just like you that are out there. And most of them just don't have the tools are doing the best they can, but they don't know how to do cost accounting or they don't know what they should be doing for the cannabis growth. So they're doing the best they can. They're entering, they're paying the rent bill. They're trying to keep good books and records, but most of them simply don't have the correct tools. And there's one of the things that we, I think we've covered that we cover the um, systems and tools. Someone asked about the coaching. So our product, and again, we'll send more information about this. We give all these tools to be a VIP, all of our marketing systems, how to find and close clients, also how to serve them 
with world-class service. We let everyone into our um, world-class community for 30 days for free. If you um, want to stay past 30 days, the community is 99 bucks a month, but it's very valuable. We have over 200 people, um, I think 250 now many CPAs, enrolled agents, MBAs, lots of bookkeepers, and we answer questions daily in there, and people answer each other's questions, so it's very valuable. We even have attorneys in that group, and we do live Q&A every other Monday as well. We cover very broad topics, like yesterday we dug in deep to um, cost accounting. And so on this final slide, this is just our core values. We all want to work remote. Um, many of us are introverts. We want to get paid what we're worth and work in a booming, exciting industry and make a huge difference in the company that we work for um, so that they'll value us. And um, it feels great. They love um, working for us. Um, and some, sometimes it takes time to get them educated and why they need us and what we're doing for them. 